in the Matthew text we'll read today, Jesus has gone out in the desert to be with God before he starts his earthly ministry. And if we re- we rewind, we remember right after, this is right after Jesus is baptized, and God said to Jesus after he was baptized, you are my beloved, my child with whom I am well pleased. And remember that up until that day, Jesus had had kind of an ordinary life. That moment in Jesus' life, nothing, not one thing before that had been extraordinary. Yes, of course, Jesus' conception and birth story were foretold and they fulfilled the scriptures. And it's actually kind of a series of unfortunate events around the birth narrative for Mary and Joseph with the census poorly timed and no room at the end, of course. But really, Jesus had lived an ordinary life of learning the craft of carpentry to make a living, probably getting splinters in his fingers and finding sawdust in his hair and his bed. He probably uh, was pressured into finding a nice gal to bring home to the folks. (laughs) He probably was caught stubbing a toe and getting a bad haircut or battling acne or learning how to parallel park a donkey. (laughs) And then Jesus is baptized and named and claimed as beloved. Immediately then, at least according to scripture, he goes to the desert and he comes into contact with the tempter. Translation you may be familiar with may say Satan or the evil one or the devil. But I like the word tempter, so we'll use that. So hear these words from the book of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the tempter. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the tempter took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship. And Jesus said to him, away with you. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So the tempter left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for us, people. Dr. Joy J. Moore is a biblical preaching professor at Luther Seminary in Minnesota, and she says the entire story of where the temptation of Jesus all boils down to the provision of God, or how we believe God provides for us. The, tempters tell, the tempter tells Jesus, 
in the midst of his hunger to turn the stones into bread. Provide for yourself. Jesus refuses because Jesus knows that God is the ultimate provider. The tempter says, prove the power of your God. Climb to the top of the temple and jump off. Test God. Test God to see if God will catch you. And Jesus says, I don't have to. I already know God is God. So the tempter said, then let me provide with the power over people and resources. And Jesus says, get away from me. And that final no is from a deep-rooted understanding within Jesus that God provides out of God's love for humanity. What the tempter tries to do is draw Jesus away from this centering belief that God loves. The tempter does this by attempting to create fear within a vulnerable and famished mind. Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and his body and his mind are weak when the tempter approaches him, and the tempter pushes Jesus to create his own food because there's a fear that God will not. Jesus knows better. The tempter pushes Jesus to prove the power of God by risking death, creating fear that God is not really who God says God is, but Jesus knows better. And then the tempter pushes Jesus to gain power instantly. Jesus knows better and sends the tempter away. But in my weakest and most vulnerable moment, I'm quickly reminded that I am not Jesus because fear takes root when I am without necessary resources. Fear takes root when I am doubtful that God will catch me if I leap. Fear takes root when I am presented with an opportunity where I can gain power or respect by my own hands rather than trusting God is already working in my tomorrows. And when fear roots, it pushes out love. Because fear and love cannot both exist in the same heart. And while our Sunday mornings together hopefully remind us that we are God's beloved, I would guess if you're like me that the other six days of the week, or even as we walk out of here on Sunday morning, the tempter tries to root the fear of not having enough, or root the fear of not being enough, or root the fear of not believing enough into our hearts, making what we do on Sunday morning not enough. And that is my fear as, as a Christian, as a pastor, that pews are empty or churches are closing because our belovedness is overgrown and choked out with the thorns and the thistles of fear. So how do we push fear out and allow love to take root and grow? It starts here in this place, I think. But it can't end here. At noon, every Sunday. My alarm goes off at 7-something a.m. each day. Then it goes off again 10 minutes later. And then it goes off again 5 minutes later after that. And so the day begins. 
I grab my phone from my bedside table. I delete all 12,000 junk emails that have accumulated since 11 p.m. the night before. I check my bank account app. Okay, I check my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I throw off the covers and step out of bed. My dog jumps up, shakes off. I slip on untied tennis shoes and the first jacket I can find as I head towards the door. I grab the leash and I clip it on the canine that is running loops around me because he's so excited to go outside. We're back in five minutes. I press the power button on the Keurig. I set the coffee mug. I load the K-cup. I brew the K-cup. I run to the shower. I come back to the kitchen to a warm, not hot, cup of coffee. I run to the bedroom with the coffee cup. I fix my hair. I put on my makeup. I decide this is going to be the outfit for the day. I make up the bed. I chug the last of the coffee. I brush my teeth. Cliff, my dog, crate, now! And the dog drops into the black steel prison cell in the laundry room and huffs at me as he lays down. Leave the laundry room light on, the lights over the sink and the hallway light, because apparently this dog needs three lights. Grab the keys from the tray at the door, I close it, I lock the knob, I lock the deadbolt, I wiggle the knob just to be sure it's locked. I throw the keys in the side pocket of my purse, I pull out my phone to make sure I have not received more emails or texts from an hour ago when the day began because the day began before I even got out of bed. <sighs> I didn't describe special It's just an ordinary day. <laughs> There's nothing extraordinary to my morning routine. It's a ritual of sorts. I know what needs to happen and when it needs to happen, so the coffee is not too piping hot. The dog doesn't mess up the carpet, and the outfit fits the needs of the day. The moments in our days are rarely extraordinary. Really, there's just a whole lot of ordinary. Back-to-back routines that happen to most people most days. And even the saintliest among us will admit that often in these routines of morning caffeine, Workouts, hair dryers, bed making, dog walking, newspaper reading. Rarely, if ever, do we give notice to how God is working to choose our wardrobe. Maybe we wouldn't say God is not there. But we're so trained to see God in the big miracles. The thunder thunder roars and the fireworks and the booms and the clashes rather than the light switch check, the key grab, and the packed lunch walking out the door in one minute. We'll be walking through the book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, over the next six weeks, both here in worship and as a Bible study together on Wednesday nights. And the author is Tish Harrison Warren. She claims that most of our days, and therefore most of our lives, are driven by habit and routine. These repetitive practices in our day-to-day motivate how we live and what we love. We are shaped by every day, she says, whether we know it or not, by practices, rituals, and liturgies that make us who we are. We receive these practices, which are often wrote, not only from the church or the scriptures, but from the culture and the year around us. These rituals Teens or liturgies reveal who we are and they shape who we are. They are our habits, but they reveal a deeper part of our beliefs, 
they are routines of brushing our teeth, yes, but they are also how we routinely treat our grocery store baggage. They are taking time to iron our slacks in the morning, but they are also taking time to collect the cans and bottles and boxes to recycle rather than send to a landfill. The liturgy is the clothing choice in the morning to make us look like us, but also the smile and wave to the homeless veteran on the Watterson exit that means we're acknowledging their humanity even when we don't have a dollar bill to offer. Our liturgy is being in the world and offering a different way to be. Augustine argued long ago that to be an alternative people is to be formed differently, to take up practices and habits that aim our love and compassion for Now Warren described that moment, that moment between waking and when our day actually begins. Sometimes we pass by it and we don't even notice it, but that moment, that in-between she says it's the liminal consciousness we're cozy and not quite alert to the demands that await us. She said it's when we don't quite want to don our identity yet. We want to stay, her words, we want to stay in the womb of our covers just a little bit longer. During this Lenten season, I want you to find that sliver of time where our only identity is that of being beloved. Where the only identity we know is not our work or our family or our emails or our to-do list or our church or our fear or what we lack or what we strive for, but our identity is simply the Rituals and routines throughout the day will capture a whole lot of ordinary. They will push us to doubt. They will push us to fear. But if our identity of the beloved is the first identity we put on in the morning, how differently the day looks and feels. So, what are your rituals? Is your morning routine? What is your evening routine? Rituals take time to develop and become habit, and sometimes we don't recognize them as rituals, but they are. Friends, what do you Pay attention to your rituals. If your ritual doesn't leave a place in a day where you identify as beloved, create a new ritual. And our lives are lived out of a place of belovedness rather than as people of 